The book of Revelation, chapter 3, verses 14 through 22 is our scripture reading this morning. We are at the end, finally, to the seven letters to the seven churches. Some of you are breathing a sigh of relief. Um, some of you, I've heard some of you really enjoyed the sermon series, so thanks be to God for that. Um, but we're at the end, and this is the most famous of the churches I think with the most memorable of the metaphors and images that we uh, have read of so far. And it's to the church of Laodicea, verse 14. To the angel of the church in Laodicea write, These are the words of the Amen, the faithful and true witness, the ruler of God's creation. I know your deeds. I know that you are neither cold nor nor hot. I wish that you were either one or the other. So because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. You say, I am rich. I have acquired wealth and do not need a thing. But you do not realize that you are wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, and naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold refined in the fire so that you can become rich and white clothes to wear so that you can cover your shameful nakedness and salve to put on your eyes so you can see. Those whom I love are the ones I rebuke and discipline. So be earnest and repent. Here I am. I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. To him who overcomes, I will give the right to sit with me on my throne, just as I overcame and sat down with my father on his throne. He who has an ear, let him hear what the Spirit says to the churches. Amen. To me, this is one of the most extraordinary images in all of the Bible. I wonder if you noticed it. It is it's a stunning image. Stunning. Jesus Christ is knocking on the door of his own church. He's knocking on the door of his own house. He's on the outside asking to be let back in. So the picture I had in my mind, and I don't intend this at all in a sacrilegious way, but growing up, I grew up watching the Flintstones. You know, the car, and you remember the opening credits of the Flintstones involve, he gets locked out of his house by, I think, the saber-toothed tiger cat or something, and he's banging on the door. Think of the absurdity, then, that the ruler of all creation should be knocking on his own home's door. He's locked out of his own house. And yet this, is, this still remains a church. We've seen this throughout the sermon series, that except for the church of uh, Philadelphia, all of the rest of the churches are places with major problems, we would have to say, major shortcomings. And yet in spite of all of the faults and shortcomings and problems, they, they still remain churches. Like they haven't surrendered that title, at least not yet. 
Jesus says, no, if you don't repent, he threatens to remove their lampstands. And then they, they cease to be churches. But, but so far, they're still churches. Remarkably, even with Jesus outside of the building, so to speak, they're still churches. I don't want to press the imagery too far, but it's extraordinary how patient Jesus is with churches. <laughs> I mean, how much less critical he probably is than you and I. And it's extraordinary how truly humble Jesus is. He's knocking on the door. He does not kick in the door. He does not beat down the door. He does not burn the place down. But he humbly knocks and he asks to be readmitted. You can almost hear him saying the words, please let me back in. Please let me back into my own house. I want to come back in to my house. And if you let me back into my house, then I will dine with you. Which is a great picture of the supper, isn't it? Let's talk a minute about the church of Laodicea, a little bit of historical background, and then we'll move into, as we often do, some you know, history, then application. So Laodicea was, like all the other churches, located in what would be today modern Turkey. Then it was the Roman province of Asia Minor. To the northeast of Laodicea was the city of Hierapolis. Hierapolis was known for their famous geothermal hot springs. Then to the southeast of Laodicea was the city of Colossae. And Colossae was known, it, it had a source for its source, this cool mountain stream water. You probably see where this is going, but so the water from Hierapolis was piped along the several miles down to Laodicea. If you pull it up on the internet later today, you type in Pipeworks, Hierapolis. Some of the original pipeworks are existent today. And if you look, you see a cross-section of the pipe, and you'll notice that there are very thick mineral deposits on the inside of the pipe because the water from Hierapolis was, as most hot springs are, thick with mineral content, full of, of sulfuric content. And when the waters from Hierapolis reached the, the city of Laodicea, they were no longer hot. They were lukewarm. And they were smelly because of the sulfur. And, and you couldn't drink it. That's the background to verse 15. Jesus says, I wish that you were either hot or cold. And by that he means, if you were cold, then the, the waters of the gospel would probably be like that cool, refreshing, thirst-quenching stream. That mountain, Evian stream. That's what the waters of the gospel would be like for you and for your city. If you were hot, then, well, we know that hot springs are great for soaking in, soothing, achy joints and muscles. If you're hot, then your waters would be medicinal for, for all of you and for all the rest of the city. But as it is, you are lukewarm, and by that he means you're good for nothing. You don't provide cool refreshment to the people that surround you, and you don't provi pro uh, provide hot, healing, medicinal. You're just you're kind of good for nothing. Let's use that descriptor, descriptor 
lukewarm to describe several categories of people. What, how would you describe a lukewarm father? What's a lukewarm father? That's a father who is, he's not entirely checked out. He's not totally absent, but he's not present and engaged. He's a man who puts food on the table. He's not a terrible father. He doesn't beat the kids. He doesn't belittle them, but he, he's not trustworthy, and he's certainly not somebody that they can attach to emotionally. They can't connect with a lukewarm father, not much. A lukewarm marriage. What is a lukewarm marriage like? And we've all seen lots of those. There's, there's no intimacy. There's no romance. There's no passion. What is, a, what is a lukewarm home, a spiritually lukewarm home, look like? Well, I mean, Gallup and, and Barna and all of those guys have done tons of statistical surveys of Christian kids who they grow up in the church and they go off to college, or they get into their 20s, and they end up leaving the church, they end up leaving the faith. And so, well, so tell me about your home life, they ask them in this, in this surveys. And 90% of the time, the kids who leave the church grew up in spiritually lukewarm homes. 90% of those who end up, quote, leaving the church in their 20s say that they never had a strong faith in the first place because their parents didn't have a strong faith in Jesus in the, in the first place. Because parents with no zeal for Christ create children with no longevity in Christ. Yeah, that makes sense. And you talk to teachers who are in the classroom. Without a doubt, they will tell you it does not matter the difficulty or the easiness of the subject matter, the subject material. The students always, always connect with the topic that the teacher is most passionate about. Passion always transfers to students. Lukewarmness always transfers to your children. Verse 17, what has made the church of Laodicea lukewarm? What can account for the lukewarmness of this church? We read, you say that I am rich, I have acquired wealth, I do not need a thing, but you do not realize that you're wretched, pitiful, poor, blind, naked. I counsel you to buy from me gold that is refined in the fire so that you can, can become rich. And he says, so there's three things, gold so you can become rich, clothes to cover your shameful nakedness, salve on your eyes so that you can see. What historians tell us is that the city of Laodicea happened to have three major, three major um, industries there. Finance, medicine, and clothing. Uh, financially, Laodicea was the Zurich of the ancient world. Clothing, there were apparently some, uh, a special type of sheep that grew very thick black wool and it would create jeans or something, I don't know, whatever type of jeans they wore back then, which probably were not jeans, <laughs> but some very durable material, and they were, they were renowned for it. And then uh, medicinally, they were known for having created an eye salve used to treat eye infections. And when I read that this week in the commentaries and stuff, I thought, that sounds just a little too good to be true. <laughs> 
Like, it's a little too neat and tidy that the three major areas of uh, industries in the city of Laodicea happen to correspond to the three statements that Jesus makes. It sounds a little fishy. And that's part of the challenge of, of uh, reading the scriptures and understanding where are the historical connections. We're kind of, all, all we're able to do when you're talking about a place that was 2,000 years ago is make the best educated guess that we have. So the, to the best of our knowledge, this is part of the local color. We think, but we can't be sure this is the imagery that John and Jesus have in mind. But if it is, it certainly fits with what we know about human nature. It's, it's natural for people who, who are well provided for and have certain strengths to be people who say that I don't have many needs. I want you to uh, imagine a community of Christian people who have only limited needs, who, are, who want for very little. Imagine this community of Christian people. If the cupboards or closets are bare, they have within a few miles of them stores that offer thousands of buying options. These Christians live in well-heated, well-air-conditioned homes with sturdy roofs and sealed windows. Within their homes are a myriad of entertainment options, hundreds of channels of television to choose from, a variety of ways to listen to music, lots of books to read, the lights come on at a flip of a switch, water comes on with the turning of a handle. If health problems afflict any member of this Christian community, Aid, which would have been miraculous only a hundred years ago, can be administered through medication bought over a counter. In the worst case, the sick person may have to be admitted to this to a state-of-the-art hospital where it is staffed with medical professionals. Imagine a Christian community like this, where countless recreation opportunities surround this group of people. Municipal parks by the dozens, golf courses, lakes, streams, rivers, a river run through, runs through it, right? Beautifully manicured acres of land where you can go running or take an evening walk or ride bikes. In this community of Christians, people, they live pretty full lives. They're, they're busy most of the time. Most of the time, they are successful and they are home to an awfully good college football team and a pretty good basketball team as well. We live in an, an incredible city. I say that, I think I say that with some regularity from the pulpit. And that could be one of the, the biggest spiritual hindrances that we have in our lives. It's so easy to live in the city of Boise and wake up in the morning and go through your day never consciously needing Jesus. Like if Jesus doesn't show up in some profound way during the day, the fact of the matter is the green belt will still be there and you can still run on it and you can still bike on it. And, you know, you can, there will be food in the pantry. If Jesus doesn't show up, I, I'm going to survive and everything is going to be fine. That's the type of person, at least, who is prone to say, I don't need a thing or the sermon title, a church that does not need a thing. 
And that's what breeds, I think, that's what we surmise is the cause of lukewarmness. If you never have to depend on Jesus, it's not surprising that you're never invigorated by the life of Jesus. If you are never lifted up on eagle's wings and his strong and mighty and almighty arms, then it's because you never had to jump into those arms in the first place. And you can extend the metaphor out uh, in, in lots of different ways. This place is so wonderful that it's, it's remarkably easy to have no need of him. Now, right now would be the perfect opportunity for me to shame you as a congregation for all of your wealth, the fact that you have a higher standard of living than kings and queens of merely a century ago, that most of the world lives on $4 a day, and, and we complain if we live on $35,000 a year and all that. But we really, I'm, we don't need to be ashamed that God has given us so much. There's no, you don't, there's no need for financial shaming. A wealthy person can be a deeply dependent person too. That's what he wants of you. He wants you to wake up in the morning and say, my God, I desperately need you. I, I, I know that I need you. Even when I don't feel like I need you, I need you today. I can't make it without you today. You, you can be wealthy and needy and dependent. The two are not at odds. <laughs> Let's look at verse 16. So, because you are lukewarm, neither cold nor hot, I am about to spit you out of my mouth. This is another one of the extraordinary statements of this passage. You and I can imagine a church that causes Jesus to weep, to weep over it, right? We can imagine a church that causes Jesus to cry. Can you imagine a church that causes him literally to vomit? He says, I am so nauseated by you and your, your lukewarmness. Literally, the spit you out of your, my mouth is, uh, I'm heaving you. He's so nauseated by them. Um, what would account for this level of, of frustration that Jesus has well, we have seen it throughout the Seven Letters series. Like with every one of these churches, except for the Church of Philadelphia, every single one of them had made major concessions and capitulations with their surrounding culture. They had either uh, adopted the culture's view of sex and sexual ethics or the culture's business practices. These are the things that you have to do in order to be successful here you know, burn a little pinch of incense to the emperor, etc., etc., etc. And when I hear Jesus say that I'm nauseated by you, I'm about to vomit you, I think to myself, he sounds like an Old Testament prophet, doesn't he? That's the type of thing that you can imagine Amos saying, or Nahum, or you know, somebody else who's growling in the Old Testament. And I realized then that in almost every instance where a prophet speaks this forcefully with God's people, it's because they've accommodated themselves to the cultures too, to the culture too. They've severely compromised their witness in that culture. And I just have to tell you, you can apply it in whatever way you think's wisest. 
Our God has no tolerance for that. You've heard of Jonathan Edwards before, considered probably the greatest theologian America has ever produced, certainly one of the seminal thinkers of colonial America. And you may have read Edwards' famous personal resolutions, the 70 resolutions that he wrote up to kind of give direction to his life. How many of you, have you read most? Haven't most of us read those? And he penned them something, I think he started writing them at the age of 14. You start to read these resolutions and you think there's no way in the world that a 14-year-old ought to be able to have this kind of grasp of their life. It might have been when he was 19, but they cover a wide range of topics. How does he have such a grasp on life at such an early age? How does a 14-year-old write resolution six in Edward's list? Resolved, number six, while I live, to live with all my might. While I live, to live with all my might, which for Jonathan Edwards meant to live for Jesus Christ with all of his might, to never be lacking in zeal, to keep his spiritual fervor, to serve the Lord with his whole heart. That's Romans twelve eleven. To live for Jesus with all my might. And it begs the question, how does somebody not be passionate about serving Jesus? If the gospel is true, if you already are possessors of eternal life, if even half of the things that we've already sung in the service today and said, if even half of that is true, if the gospel is true, if we have eternal life, if we've been adopted into the family of God, if we, how can you not be passionate about Jesus? It's, it's dumbfounding. If the gospel is true, Why would you want to coast through? It's just utterly nonsensical to me. Uh, hot coffee is delicious. Cold coffee is delicious. Lukewarm coffee is still delicious. <laughs> is it still coffee? Better illustration would be flat room temp- temperature Pepsi. That's lost its fizz. And the water and the syrup have already started to separate. Why would... Why? Resolved, while I live, to live with all my might, if the gospel is true. And we're staking our lives, aren't we, on the belief that the gospel is true? I do know... I'm a pastor. I know many reasons why Christians do lose their spiritual fervor. I I get to see the train wrecks and the the crashes. A few of these, I just listed a few of these. Number one, they get isolated. They stop being part of the body of Christ. They no longer participate in worship. They're no longer receiving the word and the sacrament. They're isolated. Number two, they, they clutch a sin that is just killing them and they won't let it go. They're indulging in something they know is truly sinful and damaging and wrong 
and they won't let it go. I mean, it's not rocket science. You can't drink poison every day and stay healthy as a Christian. It just doesn't work. Number three, they neglect intimate communication with God. They don't have an IU correspondence with God through Jesus and the power of the Holy Spirit. Number four, narcissism, they start living a life centered around me, my pleasures, my hobbies, my kids. Kid-centered narcissism probably is, is one of the biggest struggles that we have in, in Boise uh, life, I think. Number five, they become disinterested in the spiritual condition of people that are around them that are without Jesus Christ. They, don't, they just don't think at all about the Great Commission. Eh, that's, that's the pastor's job. Uh, and then I wrote down after the first service one important, one important addition I really wish I would have said in the first service. Um, you know, number six, you're just wounded. You've been so wounded by your religious upbringing or your church that you're terrified to commit, to sell out, to go entirely head over heels for Jesus. You know, once bitten, twice shy. You've, you're just hesitant to commit yourself. And I mean, I know that there are many other reasons that account for spiritual lukewarmness, but... Um, or account for the lack of passion. So is there, what is it, is it, do we get a solution in this passage? I think we do. What does Jesus say to them? He says, buy my riches, buy my clothes, um, and buy my, what was the last one? Yeah, buy my salve. But how do I buy anything, Jesus? You just told me that I am broke. How do you buy something if, there's, if you have no money to buy it with? How do you buy something if you're so blind you can't even see it to purchase it? How do you buy something if you're so naked you, you're, you can't dress appropriately to go out and shop for it? You have no clothes to go out. How do you buy when you have nothing? The answer that Jesus Christ gives is you admit that you have nothing. You admit that... You, you admit that my assessment of you is spot on. Everything you say about me is true. So the, the, uh, the theology that Jesus is channeling right here is, it's, he's, rec- he, he's uh, reflecting on Isaiah 55, which is this great prophetic passage about the messianic banquet that's to take place at the end of time. Isaiah 55, verse 1, the Lord says, Come, All you who are thirsty, come to the waters. And you who have no money, come buy and eat. The only people that are allowed to eat at the Messianic banquet at the end of time are those who can't pay for it. If you sense that the Holy Spirit is speaking to you this morning, not every one of us is lukewarm. (laughs) Maybe not even the majority of us are lukewarm and, and passionless. But if you sense the Holy Spirit is speaking to you, you say, Lord, I cannot pay. If you sense that you are the person who is blind, naked, and poor, and cannot pay, then you tell them, you tell him, I agree, that's me. I cannot pay. And then he begs you to come. Okay, let me finish with a character sketch of a man who nobody would accuse him of being lukewarm. 
Not many men would purposefully equip their fishing boat with bazookas, grenades, and a couple of 50 caliber machine guns in the hopes of finding a German U-boat off the coast of Cuba in the waters of the Caribbean Sea. I'm referring here to whom? You don't know? Okay, I'll keep going. His scheme was to wait for the German U-boat to surface, wait for the enemy boarding party to emerge on the deck of the sub. He would then, he said he would fire his engines and and he would go and and try to ram the sub and he planned to toss grenades down the conning tower of the sub. Anybody? Ernest Hemingway. Yes. He was no lukewarm man. By all accounts, Hemingway packed 10 lives into one. He was a promising young newspaperman before being wounded in Italy in World War II. Then he decided that he would participate in, uh, or sorry, World War I in Italy. Yeah. Then he said he decided he would participate in uh, World War II, landing with the American troops at Normandy. His hobbies included bullfighting, big game hunting, and war. <laughs> He lived in Spain, Paris, Key West, Cuba, and catch him. He survived exploding shells in his hotel room, getting hit by a taxi, and a plane crash in Africa. Yet for all the fullness of Hemingway's life, he experienced life as an empty, gaping hole. His hedonistic, hedonistic obsessions and heavy drinking were an attempt at escape. You know, do you know the tragedy of his story? Four marriages, severe, he went through severe bouts of depression, was twice hospitalized to receive electroshock treatment. In the end, this Nobel Prize, Pulitzer Prize winning novelist put a shotgun to his head and ended his life. What we would say, looking at Hemingway, was um, nobody would, nobody would, Characterize him as, a, as lukewarm. But his passions, I mean, weren't they a mask for the one true passion that human beings have been created for? I mean, wasn't all of the exotic and the extreme and the outlandish an attempt to fill the God-shaped void that is in the center of every one of us? If you, if you spend 10 minutes in time and, and look to discover it, he seems like he's a man who's passionate about many, many of the wrong things. Verse 20 in uh, Revelation chapter 3 here is the most famous verse in all of this section. You might have used it before. It's the great evangelistic verse. Jesus says, Behold, I stand at the door and knock. If anyone hears my, my voice and, it, and answers the door, I will come in. And, and dine with him. So when I was in college at the University of Arizona, participating in Campus Crusade for Christ, we would go out on the campus, we'd take our four spiritual laws, and we'd get to law four, and I can't remember what law four was, unfortunately, but we would draw the circle and, and say, here's your heart, and here's Jesus, he's, he's on the outside, and where do you want him to come now? Where do you want him to be? Oh, you'd like to have him come inside? We'll open your heart to Jesus, and I, I hope you see that That's not what John is talking about in this passage. But it's not entirely foreign either to this passage. When I discovered that this was not an invitation for non-Christians to accept Jesus into their 
hearts. I, I, I overreacted and I said, no more four spiritual laws for me. <laughs> it's not being truthful to the, to the Bible, but it's, being, it's saying something though that, that is very true. Um, yes, Jesus is inviting tepid Christians to renew their relationship with him. Yes, he is inviting tepid churches to renew their relationship with him. But this principle still remains. It's the principle that Jesus will not kick in the door. He will not force you or force himself on you. He will not beat it down. He will not yell at the top of his voice. He is a savior of mankind who decides to knock. There's only one way to hell, and and that is to lay in the bed and never get up out of the bed to answer the door on which he knocks. There's only one way to hell, and it's to say that, thank you very much, I don't need your garments, I'm actually well clothed. Thank you very much, I have no need for your, your salve, I see perfectly fine. Thank you very much, I don't need your food. I'm perfectly well fed. If you sense again the Spirit speaking to you and, and saying, and you sense that you hear Him knocking on the door, Jesus says, Buy from me. Open the door to me. If anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and eat with him and he with me. You have nothing. Come partake of my riches. You're hungry, you're thirsty. Stop. Bullfighting. Whatever kind of extreme activity you're indulging in. Being passionate, but being miserable all the time. But come and buy from me. And if anyone hears my voice and opens the door, I will come in and sit down with him and he with me at the messianic banquet, which we get a foretaste of right now. Amen.